You know, um, I was thinking this week, so there's something called a turning point. As you're reading literature, watching movies, it's this epic point and we're a decisive moment, right, where a change takes place. It's a turning point in a movie, in a book. It's this climactic moment where a change of direction occurs. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Toy Story. How many of you love that, that story? Uh, so it's a story, it's a, it's a movie, cartoon about Woody. Woody has the perfect life. He's Andy's favorite toy. Not only that, he's the leader of the other toys and has gained the coveted position of sharing Andy's bed. But a turning point comes when Andy has a birthday and he gets this new toy, Buzz Lightyear. Buzz has flashing lights. He has electronic sounds, not something that you have to pull a cord. And he has these wings that shoot out. I mean, Buzz is perfect. And all of a sudden, this turning point occurs to where Woody's life, as he knows it, is irreparably changed. Now, here is a spoiler alert if you haven't watched it. Plug your ears. <laughs> Woody finds out by the end of the movie that life with Buzz as his best friend is better than ever. How about another movie? Maybe more iconic, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a story about George Bailey who becomes frustrated with his life and the mistakes that are affecting him and he spirals down to the point of suicide. But then through a bumbling angel named Clarence, uh, George is provided an opportunity to see what life would be like in Bedford Falls if he'd never been alive. That turning point given him an opportunity to decide not only was his life valuable, but truly he had a wonderful life all along. I don't think turning points are just in literature. I don't think turning points are just in movies. I think turning points are also in scripture. Here's a great example, the book of Exodus. The entire book is a turning point. I mean, the people of Israel, uh, because of Joseph, were growing in the land. They're growing in size and power and influence, and they amassed to such a size that a Pharaoh who didn't know and respect the contributions that Joseph made decided to enslave the people before they sighted and enslaved Egypt. So for decades, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, a turning point occurred. God brings Moses onto the scene. Moses not only leads the people out of slavery, but positions them before the Lord, or they become the very people of God. People who'd be a blessing for all the nations. A turning point where people came from slavery to honored position of the people of God with a purpose and an opportunity to bless everybody. I was thinking this week, do you think turning points exist in our lives as well? Do you think it's possible that turning points aren't just in literature, they're not just in movies, they're not just in scripture, but they happen in our lives? Some of you may be going through a turning point of a change in work, a change of career. We have a number of young adults who are in our church who are going through a turning point in their life. 
They're now entering into a phase where they're handling their bills and they're beginning to, to plot the, the pathway for their life. Build and establish their own traditions, their own family commitments. That brings a turning point for others of us. We've devoted our lives to our kids. We've, they've almost become a source of our identity. And then when they leave, that brings us into a turning point in our life to decide what will the next 20, 30 years be for us? I think a number of you might see a turning point in culture. We used to be one nation under God. Now we seem to be a nation who's turning more and more godless and maybe even more and more opposed to God. So is it possible that we either have or will experience a turning point in our life? And if we, if we do, when we hit those times, how do we know that God will still work amidst them? And what do we do when we face them? That's what I love about this next passage of Acts. This next passage of Acts gives us a great opportunity to watch Paul in the midst of another turning point in his life, not just one, three. A series of changes that he experiences in the midst of his ministry, in the midst of his life. Not only will we see God's faithfulness, his sovereign power working in the midst of it, but we'll gain some steps some steps that the Apostle Paul took in the midst of it, and maybe some steps that we should consider taking in our lives as well. If you have your Bibles or you join me, the book of Acts, chapter 15, we'll start in verse 36. The book of Acts, it's the fifth, chapter, or the fifth book of the New Testament. 15th chapter, Acts chapter 15. While you're turning there, let me bring you up on the context, on the history. We just finished the Jerusalem Council. A council was necessary because there's a disagreement on whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Church leaders from around the area came together and confirmed that salvation was by grace and faith alone. The circumcision or any other outside work of man was not necessary for the point of salvation. As a result of that, James and some leaders decided to write a letter and to send it out to all the Gentile and Jewish churches to make sure that we're aligned together as a movement. As a result of that council, there was unity, there was celebration, there was forward momentum in the kingdom of God. And it was that moment that led up to this. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36, we see this. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul said, hey, this is a great time. The church is going great. Let's go and retrace our first missionary journey. Let's double check with all the churches and let's just encourage them and strengthen them. Let's meet them again. Let's bring this new letter from James. Let's go. And that's what leads us to our first change, a change of plans. Paul and Barnabas has this great plan to go through their missionary journey. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. John called Mark along with them also. You remember John, Mark? From a couple chapters ago, on the first missionary journey, John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. 
He was a young man, and, and Paul and Barnabas took John Mark with them on this first, first missionary journey. But you remember, soon into the journey, John Mark left. Remember that? Look at Acts 13, 13. So it says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So Barnabas wanted to give John Mark another chance. Hey, come on, let's give the young man another shot. Doesn't that sound like something Barnabas would do? But there's a big biblical but, the very next verse. You're starting to see those, right? Verse 38, but just when you think everything's going to be fine, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia, had not gone with them to work. Barnabas wanted to give the kid another chance, and Paul was dead set against it. Doesn't that sound like something Paul would do? And people wonder why. What, what, what caused Paul to be just, just such a jerk about this? Well, a lot of it comes into what he says in that word deserted. So when we read the word deserted, many people think he just left, he abandoned. That's not what that word deserted means. Deserted in the Greek, it's a word to describe someone who rejects authority, someone who incites a revolt or leads others to rebel. It's a term that, led, that has led many to believe that Mark quit the ministry out of disagreement on how Paul and Barnabas' ministry was going, particularly with Gentiles. Many people believe that John Mark left the missionary journey out of a disagreement about how ministry was happening to the Gentiles, and in particular, a lack of circumcision because John Mark went back to Jerusalem most people believe that John Mark went back to Jerusalem, started to tell everybody Paul and Barnabas aren't circumcising Gentiles, and that led to the cause of the need for the Jerusalem Council in the first place. So many people are thinking, Paul's pretty upset about that. Look, you not only disagreed on our trip and you left, but you went and you incited a rebellion about the very thing that I was stoned for. Paul's like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Other people think that John Mark was just young, Mission trips can be hard. You know, a lot of times people think that John Mark, he, he thought mission trips would be easy. When I go on mission trips, they're a lot easier than when Keith McNichols, the leader of our missions team, goes. When I go, there's a bubble of Western culture that follows. When Keith goes, you're living in dirt huts and eating I don't know what. I think John Mark might have, it's possible, he might have thought he was going on a mission trip with me. And really, he's going with Paul. For whatever reason, John Mark left. Barnabas wanted him to come on missionary journey number two. And Paul was dead sent against it. That's what led us to verse 39. And there occurred a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. A sharp disagreement, that's Bible talk for violent action, something containing great emotion. This was an intense and passionate conflict that resulted in the greatest missionary team ever built by God to date, in my opinion, breaking up. Now about you, I don't know about you, I grew up in church, and I have heard this verse many times used as a, as a defense for an angry pastor leaving the ministry or a church firing a pastor to a different ministry. And somehow many of us get this opinion that maybe God was at the source of this disagreement in order to push Paul and Barnabas in different ways. And I just want to make sure that you're clear and that I'm clear 
There is nowhere in the text that gives us any inkling of God being the manufacturer of this disagreement. The only inkling we can get is God up in heaven shaking his head because he built in his mind the missionary equivalent of the Beatles and John Mark's Yoko Ono and broke them all up. And God's shaking his head. Let me be very clear. This passage should not be taken as a license for division. Let me state that again. This passage should not be taken as a license for disagreement and a license for division. But it can serve as a comfort in the midst of it. This passage should never be taken as a license for division, but it should be taken as a comfort in the midst of it. Some people have argued for centuries whose was at fault is at this, for this separation. Was it Barnabas? Was it Paul? So often there's division. In real life, there's division in our life because of your sin, because of my sin, because of someone else's sin. We walk through division. When we do, this passage should not be used as a license for it, but a comfort in the midst of it. Look why I say that. See, the original plan was to have one missionary journey to go back in this perfect team of Barnabas and Saul going through encouraging churches, but instead, God ended up with two. Look how the text continues. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but, big biblical but right there, verse 40, just when you think that maybe the missionary movement is done, the era is finished. Not only does Mark sail away one direction to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. He was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So we have this missionary, uh, second missionary journey map that we'll be following along. And so uh, Barnabas would go to the island of Cyprus to where Paul will go through the back way and take the other direction. First aspect of change, a change of plans. But I want you to notice through God's sovereignty and in his power, he still used this division for his glory. Also, before we move on, I want to put your minds at ease in case everyone is worried, anyone is worried about John Mark. John Mark grew in to be a leader in the church, a personal friend of the apostle Peter. Look what Peter said about him. 1 Peter 5.13 said, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings and so does my son Mark. The apostle Peter would grow to see John Mark as one of his spiritual children, a close friend. Mark was also reunited with the Apostle Paul. Look at what Paul said in 2 Timothy. Only Luke is with me. And he says this, pick up Mark. Hey, while you're driving through, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in service. You notice that difference? Paul's like, I'm not going anywhere with that man. To later in life, Paul's like, bring me that guy. I need him. Even in the midst of this division, man, God brought these men back together. And don't worry too much about Paul and Barnabas. Most believe that they reunited as well because of 
something Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. Look at what he says. He says, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? I mean, Barnabas and him are back together, partnering together in ministry. For the second missionary journey, didn't really begin as anyone had thought. Before we even got travel plans set up, there was a change of plans, there was a division, there was a disagreement. And although that disagreement shouldn't, be, shouldn't give us a license for even more division, it should give us comfort. Even in the midst of it, God is at work completing his plan and ended up reuniting these men as well. Let's continue. After that change of plan, obviously there's going to be another change. Now there's a change of team. Paul needs to rebuild the band. And he starts with Silas. We read about him in that passage before. We read about Silas, and we learned about him last week. If you have your Bibles, just stay in Acts uh, 16, but let's flip over to 15. Look at Acts 15, verse 22. We're introduced to Silas. This is right at the end of that Jerusalem council. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas. Look at this, leading men among the brethren. I mean, Silas was a leader among the brethren. Here's a reason why I personally love Silas. Look to verse 32 in that same chapter. Acts 15, 32, Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves encouraged and strengthened the brethren. Look at this next one. With a lengthy message. Man, that must have been a good man. I think that was the beginning of long-winded sermons and pastors. It all started with Silas. Most pastors love Silas because of that history that he set up. Not only did he pick Silas, but we're, interested, we're introduced to another member of the team. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And the disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. The next member of the team is going to be Timothy. Timothy is a, is a young man who's likely converted to disciple of Jesus during Paul's first missionary trip to Lystra. You remember that? We went over that a few weeks ago. Paul, on his first missionary trip, he went into Lystra. And in the midst of speaking to people in the courtyard, right, just having conversations, he made eye contact with someone who was paralyzed. And he healed him. And the result of that, the entire city came around and started worshiping Paul and Barnabas believing they were the Greek god Zeus and Hermes. The city crowds, they heard they thought that because of a fable they had read over through childhood that they should be looking for God to visit man. So they started to worship Paul and Barnabas. Even the priest of Zeus came from out of town to try to offer sacrifices for them. Paul and Barnabas said, no, 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 no. They're just men, just like they are. But then Paul said, but you are right to look for God to visit man. And Paul used that opportunity to introduce him to the God of creation and Jesus. But if you remember, in the midst of that time, the crowd swung from worshiping Paul and Barnabas to stoning Paul and dragging him out of town, leaving him for dead. 
That was Timothy's introduction to faith. That was Timothy's introduction to Paul. So when Paul came back on the second mission, missionary journey, he was re associated with Timothy. And look how scripture defines him. Verse two, it says he was well spoken of by the brother. And that term well spoken of, that phrase means that everyone loved him. Everyone was talking about him. Timothy had a ton of references for his resume. Everyone in town loved this kid. I mean, this was just one of those kids where everyone knew he was going to be incredible in anything he did in life. Not only did the city of Lystra love Timothy, but Paul grew to love Timothy. Look at how he described it to the church of, of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 4, look at what he said about Timothy. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of many ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. He said something similar in the book of 1 Timothy when he was talking to Timothy, write a letter to Timothy, he said this, he said to Timothy, my true child in the faith. I mean, Paul saw Timothy as a spiritual child. Look what he said about Timothy in Philippians. He said this, Philippians chapter two. There it is. He says, look, look what he says. If I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also might be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Look what he says. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Paul says, listen, I don't have anyone. I don't know of anyone who will love you as much as I do. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth. They served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Man, Paul looks at Timothy and says, man, there's no one that gets me like Timothy does. Timothy modeled himself after the ministry of Paul. And Paul looked at his church friends and said, there's only one person that I have confidence that he will love you like I do. And that's Timothy. I gotta tell you, no one was shaking their head when Paul chose Timothy to be on his team. But the next verse did cause people to shake their head. Look at verse three. After a description to Timothy, verse three, chapter 16, Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And we hit pause, we're like, what? Wasn't Paul just ready to get in a fight over this circumcision thing last chapter? I mean, right? Paul was getting in people's faces. He was drawing a line in the sand. I mean, Paul was ready to go to blows over this circumcision issue. And now he's circumcising, circumcising Timothy? What's the deal? Didn't everyone agree that circumcision was not necessary for salvation? Yes. But this circumcision wasn't about Timothy's salvation. It was about his service. Let me state that again. This wasn't about Timothy's salvation. This was about Timothy's ministry. See, Paul knew going down the road, they were going to come face to face with a bunch of Jews that they wanted to open the scriptures to them, have dialogue, have conversations, sit down and have meals with them and help open their eyes to who Jesus was and the power of the gospel and the freedom of their life. And he knew that Timothy, 
Being half Jewish and not circumcised would be a hindrance, a stumbling block, a roadblock, a hurdle that would somehow possibly limit their ministry. So when Paul invited Timothy onto his team, it was the expectation that circumcision would occur, not for salvation, but for service. And that shouldn't surprise us. Again, let me remind you of Paul's attitude. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. Look at what he said. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so I might win those who are under the law. Paul says, look, I want to do anything possible. So I might have a relationship with people and help them understand the power of the gospel of Christ. And that requires circumcision. Cut me. But look at what else he says. To those who are without the law is without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the, win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul's like, look, I'll do anything. I will contort myself. I will bend. I will travel. I will do whatever it takes short of disobeying the gospel of Jesus Christ and God himself. I will do whatever it takes to put myself in a position to proclaim the gospel to people who have yet to hear it. I got to tell you, Timothy's not going to last long on Paul's team if he doesn't share that same commitment. The circumcision, just so you know, it's not about salvation. It's about service. It's about leadership. It's about ministry. Let's keep reading in chapter 16 and see the impact of this group. Verse 4. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. And the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So Paul, Silas, Timothy took that letter from James and the other brethren and took them to all those churches Continue to encourage them in theology of salvation by faith alone. Continue to proclaim the gospel and look at the results. Number one, they were strengthened in faith. Again, that phrase means that those churches, those Christians were, were straightened up in their beliefs. They were firmed up in their confidences. They, they were able to dig roots deep for their strength. Not only that, but God was increasing their number daily. I mean, as the church was going out proclaiming their faith, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the power of salvation for all who believes, God continued to grow their movement and grow their church. And I've heard people say, okay, but Brian, that's for the New Testament time. That's, that's the early church movement. No. 47% of our 10-mile radius has no religious involvement whatsoever. But over 80 of them, 80% of them believe that God is active and real. And the 70% believe that God is actively involved in their daily lives. They have just yet to see him. 
May you throw in people who are deceived by false religions. More out of one every two people that you come in contact with in our 10-mile radius have yet to see Jesus as we do. Man, all it takes is for Christians to have conversations about the gospel of Christ and the circle of influence. And I believe God would still add to his kingdom daily. I believe God still is. Well, the second missionary journey, first missionary, a second missionary trip, it's already began with two changes, a change of plans, a change of teams, and now that brings us to the third change, a change of direction. Look how it continues. Look at verse 6. They passed through, talking about they, talking about Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they tried going to, into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Let's go back to our map. Up in that upper region, you see the box says Timothy joins Paul and Silas right there in the upper middle of the screen. That's Lystra. After that, it just seems like Paul's wandering through the desert. Here's why. Verse 6 says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, okay, we're going to go through Phrygian and Galatian region, but we're just going to have to keep moving. Why? Because we've been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of Asia, to Asia. Forbidden. Phrase means that Paul was prevented from speaking. He was hindered. The Holy Spirit stopped him from talking. It's not just the first time he wants to go on. It says after Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. And look what the Spirit said. The Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Did not permit. That phrase means the Holy Spirit straight up stopped them, blocked them, got in their way. And questions are forming. Well, how did the Holy Spirit do it? And why? How did the Holy Spirit forbid and stop? Did he close a door and open windows? Did he remove peace? Did he physically appear and block their way? How did the Holy Spirit direct? Scripture doesn't say. But here's what the Scripture does say. Paul recognized it and obeyed. As Paul's wandering through the desert, he's going through, he knows what he's there to do, the strengthen churches to proclaim the gospel. So he's going through, turning right, turning left. Holy Spirit says, nope, nope. And Paul heard it. Man, he's thinking, leads us to the first step for us. When you're in the midst of a turning point, we're in the middle of change when the world is spinning around you and change is occurring, first step for us, listen to the Holy Spirit. Man, I think we have to start attuning our ears to that, folks. The church I grew up in, we never talked about the guy. We talked about God the Father, Jesus the Son, and we talked about the Holy Scriptures. I knew the Holy Spirit existed, but I didn't know anything about him. And we went over this a couple of weeks ago, but I want to readdress it just to continue to drive that into our hearts in terms of a huge part of the Holy Spirit's job, what his function in our lives is to lead and to guide. Look at what the Apostle Paul said, Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. 
Man, if you're a child of God, you're being led by the Spirit. That term lead, by the way, he's leading us by the hand through life. The term is used to describe what someone does when they lead a horse by the reins through a maze. And the Holy Spirit is right in front of you in the midst of the twists and turns and murky waters of life. The Holy Spirit's right in front of you, leading you through it. In the midst of a turning point, you're in the midst of a change, you don't know how to move forward. Step number one, listen to the Holy Spirit. He's there to lead you. Look what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. John 16 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. In the midst of this, of change and this turning point in your life and the murky part of life, man, we have so many talking heads in this world. And as Christians, it's so easy to just turn on a podcast, pull up someone's sermon, We'd much rather listen to the opinions of man instead of the voice of God. Man, the Holy Spirit is given to you. It's a gift to lead you and guide you in the midst of these changes. How? Well, Brian, how do we start attuning our ears? How do we start learning how to listen? Man, we're so good at tuning things out, aren't we? I think my family's convinced I have hard of hearing. I think it's more selective hearing. I've just learned the ability to sit in my room and turn off the cacophony of family. They're ready to buy me hearing aids. I think I just need to attune my hearing to listening to the voices of my children again. How do we do that in life? How do we do that with the Holy Spirit? Number one, the Word of God. Bible tells us the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word of God. I mean, get in your Bibles more than just Sundays. Read it and allow the Holy Spirit to bring things in your mind, to use the Word, to chasten, to correct, to heal, to restore. I mean, you, you, you want to learn how to listen to the Holy Spirit. Read your Bible. Second, I've told you this before, man. I, I have good friends that I believe love Jesus just as much than me, and if I'm honest, probably more than me. And they have the strength to speak truth to me. And sometimes I have a hard time determining, is this the spirit or is this the flesh? And there's good people that I trust that they know how to listen to the spirit, and they know me. You want to learn how to listen more attunely to the leading and guiding of the Spirit, get into your Word of God and involve some people, not a ton of people. We all don't need like 20 voices in our head, but one or two that can help you discern the voice of the Spirit in your life. Man, in the midst of a turning point and the change and everything whirling around in life, step number one, what you can do, learn to listen to the Holy Spirit Here's the second thing I say here. A, listen to the Holy Spirit to keep moving. With Paul, 
When, when he continued to go in, he knew what God had called him to do. He was on this missionary journey. He turned right to go into this region. Holy Spirit said no. He turned left to go into this region. Holy Spirit said no. The apostle Paul didn't stop. He kept moving. Man, as Christians, I think when we're not totally clear on what God is doing, we just stop, sit down, and hug a tree. That's what we're taught to do as kids, right? When you're lost, hug a tree. Dad'll find you. And so now for a decade, unsure of what God is doing, churches are filled with people who are sitting there looking up into heaven and saying, come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Apostle Paul kept moving. I know that everything in our flesh tells us in the midst of change, in the midst of struggle, at turning points in our life where everything seems to be fluid and changing, we need to just sit still. The Apostle Paul didn't want to get stagnant. And I don't think we do either. And here's why the Apostle Paul was able to keep moving. He had confidence that at some point, everything would be made clear. Look at verse 9. As Paul is still moving, he's still walking. Okay, I can't go that way, can't go that way. I'm still going. Verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Look at this word, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. A term concluding, it's an old-fashioned Greek word that means to bring something together, to knit something together, to finally complete the puzzle. Man, I circled that word in my Bible because that gives me such comfort. See, Paul, as he's wandering through the desert, he's not entirely sure what God's doing. He was, he was able to knit and put it all together after that vision. After that vision, Paul's like, oh, I get it. There was that one moment that he continued to keep moving and then suddenly God gave him that final piece and Paul says, oh, I get it. Man, when you're at this spot where you're not quite sure precisely exactly what God wants you to do, keep going. Sometimes we're so afraid of doing the wrong thing, Christians end up doing nothing. Instead, have confidence in the grace of God. I mean, the people that I see throughout Jesus' ministry, who is most angry with people who claimed to be more righteous than they were, and Christians who buried their talents out of fear of failure. Man, that stuff just ticked Jesus off. So I've committed in my life, all right, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let everyone know I'm an idiot from up front. And I'm going to trust If I do my best to love Jesus and serve him, I'm going to hear my grace is sufficient for you. Man, you're in a time of turning point and change amidst your life. Number one, listen to the Holy Spirit. Pause, take time every day to just try to hear his voice. Second, man, keep moving. And confidence that God's going to bring everything together for you. Trust in the grace of Jesus. Last step 
in the midst of your turning point, number one, listen to the Holy Spirit. Number two, keep moving. Number three, be ready to go. Man, when God finally clears everything up for you, be packed and ready and let's go. And I wanted to clarify in first service, when I say let's go, that doesn't mean Arizona, that doesn't mean Texas. There is a time in church where I didn't have to say that. When I'm saying let's go, I mean do ministry and reach people for Christ in the midst of the Chino Valley and around the world. If God calls you to Arizona, hallelujah. In the midst of change, listen to the Holy Spirit. Keep moving in confidence that God is going to direct you. And number three, when he does, man, be ready to go. Be packed and ready in the starting blocks, ready to go. That's what we see with Paul. Look at the end of verse 10. When he had seen the vision, immediately, right away, without hesitation. Man, they were good to go. They were traveling like they were ready to turn on a dime. When God calls, they were out. Verse 11, so putting out of the sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, we were staying in the city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Man, this passage gives me comfort because even super-Christians like Paul faced division and disagreement, had to continue to assemble new teams, and there's even at least one point in his life where Paul wasn't clear what he was doing. During those times, he listened to the Holy Spirit. Paul kept moving in confidence that God would lead him. And then when God finally made it clear, man, Paul was gone. I think that's why I love the Bible. It just gives us clear portraits of realistic ministry. The reality is sometimes in our life, because of your sin, my sin, or someone else's, we're gonna have division and disagreement. That doesn't make it okay. But it also doesn't mean that God's gonna quit. There's gonna be times where you're building new teams together. There's going to be moments where you're not sure what God is doing and where he is leading. I guess the question for us is, in those turning points in your life, in those moments of change, what will you do? How will you manage it? What steps will you take? I love the encouragement the Apostle Paul gave in 2 Corinthians. Paul says this, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And Paul said, oh, I'm going through life. I love it. He says, man, there have been times I was perplexed, confused. Man, it's so comforting to me. Even Paul had moments of confusion. But he knew he wasn't alone. 
There's time of struggle, persecution, and pain. I mean, I don't know anyone who suffered more than Paul. But Paul said, I know that even in the midst of that, I'm not broken. I'm not alone. God has promised never to leave me nor forsake me. Even though I walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because God, you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Man, we're surrounded by enemies. God's not worried. He has lunch for you. He anoints your head with oil. A cup overflows. And when it's all said and done, you have confidence. You'll rest in the kingdom of God forever. Turning points are gonna happen, folks. Change will come. When that happens in our church, in your life, in our culture, what will we do in the midst of it? Perhaps some of you are here, you need to pause and listen for the Lord. Maybe for some of you, maybe for some of you, you need to overcome division. You've been separated by disagreement over things in the scheme of things. doesn't really matter. Maybe some of you are in the midst of change and you're spun, you're lost, you're confused, you feel like you're wandering in the desert. Maybe some of you are stagnant, you've just been stuck in your faith, stagnant in life, unable to move forward. Maybe today it's time for you to decide to keep moving, relying on the grace of Jesus and his spirit to lead you and guide you. However it is, let's respond today. Oh, Jesus, we come together as a church. God, first grateful. I'm grateful for your word that just gives us a clear portrait of life and ministry. God, I'm grateful that you give us authentic views of champions of the faith. God, I pray you protect us from division. God, give us mercy and compassion together. Help us to focus on the gospel and what matters to you. God, fill us with mercy and compassion and grace towards one another. God, that you will continue to build unity in this church. But God, we're grateful that if and when disagreement and division comes, you are still at work. God, I pray pray for people today who are in the midst of change, who feel confused, perplexed. People who are going in the midst of painful change in their marriage or in their life or with their children. Even some, God, with their church. God, I pray. Open our ears and allow us to hear your spirit. Open our eyes that we can see your direction as you speak it. 
God, unify us in your vision. God, show us what you see. Give us your vision that might unify us together and mobilize us in power that we might bring you even more glory together. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.